My name is Jeff Lerner, and I interview elite performers from a wide range of disciplines, entrepreneurs, athletes, celebrities, scientists, artists, and more. This is Unlock Your Potential. Welcome to another episode of Unlock Your Potential, where we get to have amazing conversations with amazing human beings. Today, I was lucky enough to be joined by Ryan Mickler. He is the founder of Order of Man, one of the biggest movements online around men, around manhood, manliness, masculinity. And we got into uh, essence of what it means to be a man and his terms to protect, provide, and preside. Uh, it was a really, really wonderful conversation, uh, really empowering. And I wanna suggest uh, that you not go into it with your guard up or with any biases in place about what you would expect from a conversation between two men about <laughs> manness, so to speak. It, it was really a very human conversation and one I really enjoyed uh, and that I invite you to as well. So on that note, enjoy my conversation with uh, Ryan Mickler from Order of Man. All right, Ryan Mickler, welcome to Unlock Your Potential. So glad you're here, man. What's up, Jeff? Glad, glad to be here. I know we had some scheduling conflicts. That was my fault. Uh, so I appreciate uh, you being gracious enough to schedule another one with me and make this happen. I've been looking forward to it. Well, uh, no, it's, it's wonderful, man. Uh, whatever doesn't kill us. And I'm glad to have you here. I was not gonna, I was not gonna let one scheduling snafu kill the, the possibilities here. Uh, cause I'm frankly, I'm a big fan of your work and I was excited to have you on the show. Thank you. Um, so, so let's just jump right into the deep end. Uh, you know, I alluded in the intro, uh, order of man, you know, sort of masculine or male development movement that you've created. Mm -hmm. Um, you know what? At risk of asking a, an overly broad question, let me just start with how and why. That is a broad question. Uh, <laughs> why why it's, focusing it's, in on helping men in specifically? Because I'm a man. I mean, that's the that's the easy as I can put it. When I started this thing uh, almost almost eight years ago now, uh, I was in a position where I felt like I needed to improve myself as a husband a father. I had a financial planning practice that was doing fairly well, but wasn't exactly where I wanted it. And I thought, what better way than to have conversations with men that I was inspired by? I had another podcast for my financial planning practice. And I decided, man, I love the medium of podcasting, but I don't want to have that conversation anymore. And so I started this and it was, I mean, very quickly, the show took off and exploded, which is a testament, not to anything I was doing necessarily, uh, but to the the concept of men's development. So I started it for selfish pursuits. I wanted to improve myself. I still want to improve myself. Uh, and then I let other men listen into the conversations I was having with incredible people. And it's just, it's gone from there. So it since then, it's become really my life's work. I feel, I feel called, frankly, to do this work. I didn't know that at the time, but I feel called to do this because I look around and I see, especially now, how many men are just struggling uh, and women too. And uh, this is my way of addressing something that is important and something that I feel I'm qualified to do because I have a desire to do it and the aptitude to put a podcast out. Not to say that I'm better than anybody else or that I'm the epitome of masculinity, but I'm certainly willing to figure it out. So, yeah, I love, um, I love, like I said, I love your work. Um, I love the explicit focus on helping, just helping men be better. I mean, I don't want to get into like 
political or, or cultural territory excessively, but like, you know, I wouldn't say we live in the age that glorifies masculinity. <laughs> um, not currently because we don't need to. We live in relatively easy times. I, and that's not to discount the hardship a lot of people are facing. But if you look at it, generally, we're in the more, most abundant, prosperous, healthiest time to ever be alive in the history of humans. So there's no need for us to call upon the men. But that time will come. And uh, hopefully we can learn our lessons before that does, because it will get ugly if it gets to that. Yeah, I, I love what I want to point out for the audience. So many, so much of the audience is sort of, I would call it either uh, they're aspirationally entrepreneurial, meaning either they're thinking about starting a business and they, you know, hopefully are inspired by folks like you and me to, who have done that uh, to take their their drive or their passion and turn it into a, a, a commercial or commercializable crusade in the world, or they have a business and they're looking to grow it just by, by virtue of what I do in the world. That's a lot of who's out there. So I want to highlight both the, a truth of you and a truth of me, which is that, you know, essentially we identified a problem that we were experiencing in our own life that we recognized likely other people were experiencing a problem or an issue or a challenge or whatnot. And simply by engaging in it humbly and honestly to say that I'm going to I'm going to go on a journey to challenge this issue for myself and I'm going to invite other people into that journey. A really wonderful, like you said, life's work emerges from that. And I think that we live in a, in a society that has a sort of a, a binary relationship with work of like, well, work is a thing that I clock into and I clock out of, and it fundamentally is a trade of time for money so that I can fund the life that I want to have outside of it, as opposed to create the life that I'm called to through my work. And that's right. what I love about what you've done and frankly, what I've done. And so I wonder if you could talk about that early process of deciding that this was going to be a thing and you were going to dive into it and, and sort of how and why you invited other people into it and how and why it became clear that this is a, this is a real business, a real, a real life trajectory, not just like a, call it a side project. Yeah. I, the term you used was commercialized crusade. I haven't heard that before, but it pretty well encapsulates what we've been able to do, which is to create a movement mm -hmm. around a problem and issue and, and then, make it profitable. And, and the interesting thing about that is so many people have a hard time marrying the idea of doing something that they're passionate and excited about and then making money doing it. And I don't think they're at odds with each other. In fact, I think if you can do those simultaneously, it actually fulfills the other one. If I can be passionate about something, I can make more money doing it. If I make more money doing it, I can serve more people on this crusade, to use your term, that I'm embarking upon. So I had to find out very quickly that even though there was people who would say, oh, I can't believe you're making money. Aren't you just doing this out of the goodness of your heart? I don't think doing something because I'm excited about it is at odds with making a lot of money doing it. And I think that's one of the biggest hurdles that aspiring entrepreneurs need to overcome. And we live in a place and a time where it's so easy. No, let me back up. It's not easy the barrier to entry is lower than it's ever been. I'll say it that way. Yeah. So I started this thing. I started having uh, conversations, like I said, with men and I was doing it uh, between my financial planning appointments. I'd wake up early and put a couple hours on the website. I'd, I'd, I'd tuck the kids into bed and, and spend my some time with my wife. And then I'd do a little bit more work on the business. I did that for about seven months before I made my first dollar in, in this business. 
And uh, my wife came to me one day and she said, hey, you know, I really, I really like that you're doing this order a man thing. You seem fulfilled and happy with where it's going, but you're like detracting from family household income and your, your actual business because you're doing this. So you maybe you ought to think about a way to scale back or, or, or make some money doing it. And she was dead on with that. And I listened to a podcast. I think it was from maybe Pat Flynn or John Lee Dumas or something. I can't remember who it was. And the guy was talking about courses. So I put together a course and I messaged our Facebook group and I said, guys, I've got this course. It's called the Iron Council. It's a 12 week program. I knew what the topics we were going to talk about were, but I hadn't done anything other than that. And I said, I've got 12 spots. It's a hundred bucks for 90 days. Who's in? And we sold out on those immediately. I'm like, oh, got it. I can make money doing this. And that was a big moment of inflection for me where I realized, okay, I can take something I'm excited about and I can introduce it to people who are also excited about this thing. And I can make money doing it to serve my needs and to serve other people's needs as well. Yeah. So, so in my uh, education platform, we refer to what generally what you're describing is the knowledge business, right? I, I know some stuff about a thing and I'm in pursuit of more knowledge about the thing and I'm going to create a a, a shareable journey and monetize my pursuit of, of more knowledge around that thing and, and the sharing of what I'm learning. And like, it's, I mean, I'm in the exact same business around entrepreneurial development and it's the most amazing life. And I think that, you know, you referenced some of the, the challenges or um, may call them like misperceptions, like, like people have issues around, you know, monetizing what they're doing or imposter right. syndrome of like saying, oh, I'm not qualified enough. I'm not an expert enough to be this, you know, the center of this movement or whatever. Can you talk a little bit about, uh, you know, obviously I'm here to dispel those misperceptions, but, but can you talk a little bit about yourself and how, I mean, especially manliness, like there's, it's almost got competition built into it, right? So it would be an easy <laughs> thing to feel inadequate about. Um, how did yeah. you overcome those issues and say, no, you know what, I'm going to be, I'm going to be a man, a man's man who talks about man stuff. Well, I've never lied about it. I've never said that I have it all figured out. I mean, that's the biggest thing. People talk about this concept of imposter syndrome. Well, the way you overcome that is don't be a poser. Just be real. And yeah. that's what I've done. I, I mean, I tell people, hey, here's what I struggle with in my marriage. Here, here I'm impatient with my kids. Um, I like to eat a lot, like chips and salsa, ice cream. You know, I don't always make it to the gym. Um, you know, I, I'm not I'm not perfect. I'm, I'm just trying to figure it out. And so I've never, and this is one thing that people need to be better at, is don't paint yourself as something you're not in hopes that you will win over somebody. Because it's better just to say, hey, guys, here's where I'm flawed. Here's where I'm struggling. And I'm going to bring in experts. And I have. I've got guys like Terry Crews and Tim Tebow and Ben Shapiro and Matthew McConaughey and Jocko Willink. I mean, some of the who's who that have come on our podcast to teach me about the things that I want to learn about. And I've never said, hey, I'm I'm as disciplined as Jocko or I, I'm as as empathetic and kind and caring as Tim Tebow. Or I'm as energetic and, and, and motivating as Terry Crews or as intelligent as Ben Shapiro. I'm not any of that. But I bring those guys in because they're helping me and in turn helping the people that listen in. So the way you overcome imposter syndrome, don't be an imposter. Just be real with people. And, and I've, I've found 
that those who are going to be receptive to your message understand that you're not perfect and they actually appreciate the fact that you have some flaws and you're willing to discuss what they are. Because people are sick of the the idol that has no flaw whatsoever, or at least tries to pretend that they don't. So can you talk a little bit about the origin of your your journey around developing as a man? And and for context, I've listened to, you know, I've known of your work for a little, uh, a decent while. And I also have listened to a couple of your interviews. So I've heard some of the backstory, but I'm wondering if you could kind of tell it, tell it for the audience. Um, both actually, and I mean that, I mean, two parts. One is uh, as a child, the absence of a father figure. And then the other is it sounds like this grew out of some stuff with your wife. Yeah. So exactly right. My, my dad was pretty much out of the picture by the time I was three. Uh, we always had a decent relationship, although strained. I'd usually see him, you know, once a year, maybe twice a year during my summer break from school. And man, I remember we had a great connection. We'd play Lego and we'd play with cars and man, I just really thought the world of him. Um, but it gradually became more and more strained and I just didn't really see him. And I had a lot of animosity pent up towards him. Uh, and my mom primarily raised me and my sister on her own. I had some other men come into my life, some stepfathers who suffice it to say, were not great examples of, of what it means to be a man. And, uh, yeah, it really took some coaches that stepped up into my life. I spent some time in the military and had some great leaders there who really taught me what it means to be disciplined, what it means to develop a skill set, what it means to be tough, what it means to uh, have sacrifice for something that's important to you. So that, that, that was a big part of, of me not getting what I needed as a young boy, but then also later picking it up. And then, yeah, with my wife, you know, we went through a separation and I realized, man, I'm so, I'm, I'm falling short in so many ways. I had a one-year-old son at the time and man, we just really struggled and I didn't get it. And I didn't know what to do. I still don't get it. I still don't always know what to do. Uh, and I realized, you know, I need to, I need to go to work on this. And so I started to get in shape and I got my finances in order. Um, and I became more fulfilled. I really did. I became more fulfilled for myself. And she recognized that she saw that and we were able to reconcile and, uh, we've got, you know, four kids and we still have our, our fair share of problems, you know, and, and I'll, and I'll, I'll be the first to admit that that's on me. <laughs> like the majority of, of the problem are, are my issues that I still am working through and towards and trying to process, you know, the things that I had and didn't have and the experiences I was exposed to as a child, some good, some not so good and how they spill over into my relationship and that dynamic now. Yeah. I'm just, I just want to learn. I just want to show up for my wife. I want to show up for my kids. I want to show up for guys that listen to what we're doing I'm just trying to learn. I'm just on the path. So in your, in, in the bio, they sent over when you were coming on the show, um, it, it, I'm, I'm looking at it right now. It says, what would the world look like if there were more men in it? And you say, I'm not talking about males. I'm talking about men. There is yeah, right. a difference. Can you, can you tease out how you distinguish between males and men? Yeah, it's easy. I've got I've got four children. Uh, do you have children? I do four four as well. Okay, cool. So I've got three boys and a girl. How about you? Two and two. Okay. So let's just take the boys for right now. Mm -hmm. Your boys are boys. Do you call them men? Well, one of them's almost twenty. So okay, so he's, he's a man, getting there, right? Yeah. <laughs> or he's at least at that age. Mine are younger. Okay, so mm -hmm. I've got. I've got my oldest is fourteen and my youngest is six. So they're boys. I don't call yeah. them 
men, I call them boys. We don't even expect them to be men, but they are male, right? Male is just a birthright. They were born with anatomy. They were born with the, the, the biological makeup of, of being a male. It's interesting to me that we even call that into question in modern times, but we do, but they're male and everybody objectively would call that them males. We don't expect them to be men, but there comes a point in time where a male is expected to act like a man. And we all know people who are like, oh man, that guy's a man. Mm-hmm. And we have different definitions of why, but if being a male is a matter of birthright, being a man is earned. And the way that you earn that is by first being able to take care of yourself. If you can't take care of yourself, you haven't earned that title yet. But above and beyond that, a man becomes a man when he learns not only how to take care of himself, but he does that in abundance so much so that he can now care for and provide for others. So a man is a protector. He's a provider. He presides, he leads, and he serves other people. And that's why you have 40-year-old males who are the age of men, and yet we don't really consider them men because they're acting more like boys, and why we have some young men who act more like men because they are responsible for themselves or they are adding to the household or the community in some way, and that's manly behavior. So do you have, I'm curious sort of how deep this this goes with putting definition and distinction around manhood or I probably don't love the term manliness, although I know the the art of manliness, like there's some good media out there that uses that term, but, but like, have you created like frameworks or do you have like, like the question that was coming to mind while you were speaking is like along what dimensions of life is there a, is there a, a descriptly manly way to show up? Like, what are the different yeah. areas in which a person can man, so to speak? Sure. Yeah. It's good. Yeah. Use it as a, uh, as, as a verb, right? Yeah. Man. Um, which we do, by well, the way, we say man up, son, you know? Right. That's exactly right. Yeah. And some people hate that term. I like that term only because I know what it means. Mm. So, so it's interesting because every time I talk about man and male, the conversation we just had, people be like, well, you know this, and they'll have their own exceptions. Look, I'm only defining it so we can have a logical, reasonable, intelligent discussion. If you want to define it some other way, that's fine, but we all need to know what we're talking about. So mm-hmm. I will use the term man for a, a a male who's 40 years old. I will still say he's a man, but he's not acting manly, right? Some of it just gets into semantics. So let's not trip up over that. But to answer your question about frameworks, yeah, the first framework is protect, provide, preside. And that's not subjective, actually. That's pretty objective. There's a, there's a great book. It's this, it's this blue one, I believe, right here behind me. And it's called Manhood in the Making. And it's mm. by David Gilmore. And it's, oh, it's okay. Have you read it? Uh, no, but I've read uh, Men and Marriage. Okay. Yeah. Which I, I believe is the same guy. Wait, David, David Gilmore. David Gilmore is also the, the guitar player from Pink Floyd. Oh, is that? I don't know. That my wife so would know that answer. No, I don't. no, I'm thinking, I'm sorry. I'm thinking of a book by George Gilder, not Gilmore. Okay. So apologies. Okay. I, I'm no worries. The Anyways, this in this book, he goes and he studies cultures. Throughout time in history, some cultures who have never been introduced to each other, and yet all of these cultures have striking similarities in the way they view manliness, the way they view men behaving like men. Mm-hmm. And he, he asserts that it's to protect and provide, just like I would assert, 
And his third is to procreate. I disagree with that because I know some very manly men who are, for example, unable to have children. And I don't think that disqualifies somebody from being a man. But I do believe the third tier of that is to preside, which is synonymous with leadership. So that's the first framework. So we have protect, provide, preside. If a man's not working to make himself better in those three areas, then he's not being as manly as he otherwise could be. Hmm. Now, the interesting thing about that is there's an infinite number of ways to fill those roles. Let's talk about provision. A lot of the times we have these quintessential beliefs about what is manly work, blue collar, we would generally think of as being manly, but we wouldn't necessarily think of a chef uh, or an artist as manly, but that's incorrect. If he's providing for himself and other people, I'm asserting that he's acting manly. And I don't care if it's with a paintbrush or a camera or a spatula or a hammer and a screwdriver or a microphone. It doesn't matter what it is. What matters is you're doing the work of men, which is to provide for yourself and other people. So that's, I don't really get into the frameworks of what is manly and what isn't. Now there's certain characteristics that I would generally consider manly. I I would say uh, discipline, violence, aggression, stoicism, competitiveness, dominance. These are things I talk about in our book, The Masculinity Manifesto, that we would generally consider masculine characteristics. And I talk about how we can harness even those characteristics that would sometimes be considered negative as positive forces for good in the world. You mentioned stoicism. How aligned or maybe how deep do you go with stoicism and and sort of bleeding that into your your distinctions around manliness or manhood? I'm not going to say that I'm very well researched in in stoicism. I, I know enough and I do read books and study and learn about stoicism. But the way that I look at it is that a man should really strive to understand his emotions. You know, so often we're taught that we don't cry. We don't share those emotions. We're we're very, very, uh, neither, neither, you know, sad nor mad, just very baseline, very level. No, I don't think so. I think it's okay that a man experiences sorrow or sadness as well as gladness and, and glad and happy and joyful and all these other things. It's not really a matter of whether or not we experience the emotions. It's how we utilize those emotions. So I look at, um, I look at emotions like I, I would uh, the, the dashboard of a car. If you're driving down the road and the check engine light comes on or the fuel light indicator comes on that you're low on gas, you don't jerk the wheel and drive it off the road and run it into the next tree or telephone pole you see. No, that's, that's not, that would not be an appropriate way to handle that little indicator that came on. What you do is you find the next exit, you pull into the gas station, you fill up the car and you get back on your way. Well, that's what we need to do with our emotions. Okay, I'm angry. So why don't I go hit somebody or punch somebody or, or say something out of anger? No, you're not going to do that. You're going to figure out why you're angry. And usually it's a deficit on your part or an insecurity. I know this because this is me. And so I address the insecurity or I address the deficit or the problem, and then I go on about my way. That's how I look at how we utilize and harness emotions for productive outcomes. Yeah, I I love that. Um, I actually did an interview earlier today uh, with a a, a PhD researcher on how people make decisions. And we discussed at length sort of 
how to utilize emotions as valuable data, but not let them become the tail that wags the dog in, in the decision-making process. Um, yeah. And I, I think you just kind of echoed that. Um, so I'm curious, uh, what, what would you say in, in all of your interviews, how many interviews have you done on your show? Oh, um, gosh, 450. If I had to guess, I would, I would say mm-hmm. 450 or so, maybe give or take. I, I don't know. Um, and and what would you say the movement consists of as kind of its core threads? I know there's a podcast. Uh, you've got at least one book that I know of. You mentioned the Masculinity Manifesto. Um, is, there, yep. is there a second book? Yeah. Well, there's a first book, Sovereignty, The Battle for the Hearts and Minds of Men. And okay, then okay. Masculinity Manifesto is my second book. Gotcha. And then okay, we so- also, in addition to that, we have our events that we run. So we bring guys here to our property in Maine. Uh, we just did our, our two fall events. One's called the main event. I bring in 120 guys. We do another event called legacy where I bring in 20 fathers and 20 boys. So we have a good time out here with our events as well. I think between the, the book, the events, um, the podcast, and then we have what I call our exclusive brotherhood, which is over 1500 men now all working together to learn from each other, to hold each other accountable um, to support and lift each other up, to teach each other, to learn from each other. That's a powerful brotherhood. That's called the Iron Council. Okay. The Iron Council. Um, and how long ago did you start all this? Uh, May of 2015. So coming up on eight years now, getting close, yeah. seven, seven and a half years or so. Well, it's, I mean, it's a wonderful, frankly, testimonial for what can happen when somebody becomes really passionately possessed with with an important question. I mean, that's, that's what it strikes me is like you decided that an important question was worth pursuing and was more important than less important things, which sounds silly, but how many people treat less important things like they're more important than more important things and thus never realize their, their potential. Well, and that, and that's subjective too, right? I, I, so for example, I was doing financial services before I started this and you know, I found I found value in what I was doing. I, I thought it was important, uh, but I always knew in the back of my mind. And and you could ask my friends and and um, and fellow advisors, like the the guys that I knew, they knew this because I would talk with them about that. I always knew in my mind it wasn't something I was going to do long term. Hmm. Like I always knew there was something different. But I've got a really good friend. His name is Greg Black. He's a financial advisor. We got into the business at the same time. In fact, for a few years we were business partners, and he's so passionate about financial services and financial planning, the way that I am about this work, it's just, and I'm not about him and he's not about, it's it's just interesting. Everybody has their own thing and it's cool. Like follow it. Yeah. Well, I love that you made that distinction that, you know, I use the labels of of more important and less important. And you, you sort of uh, couch that, that that is a personal and that is a relative distinction. Like people. And so my, my, my statement is really, rooted in the tragedy of people that are prioritizing things that they feel less passionate about or less Agreed. connected to over things that would be more important to them. Yeah. And it's usually a function of living somebody else's agenda or somebody else's program or, 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 or just inertia, right? They, they're on a track and they haven't bothered to get off. So I'm curious, when you decided to make this a real focus, you alluded to the conversation that your wife had with you about monetizing it. But even prior to that, um, was there anybody in your life that either supported you? Hey, this is a really cool thing. Go there or discouraged you of like, 
like, bro, what are you doing? Like, why don't you focus on your main business? Yeah, I had both. You know, I, yeah. I, I had friends who thought it was cool. They didn't really get it, which is understandable because I didn't really get it either. Right. And I wasn't probably describing it very well. I didn't really have a clear vision in my mind to be able to cast that to others. Uh, I never really had any adamant naysayers who, who were in my familiar circle. I had naysayers, but they didn't know me that, you know, they, they'd listen to the podcast and say it was stupid or whatever. But the people that I knew would more question it, not, not trying to discourage, but I think trying to figure it out. But then mm-hmm. I had a lot of other people who were like, man, that's really cool. This is something that's much needed. I could, I could see how that would be valuable. And I wasn't deterred or encouraged either way. I didn't really care if people got it. If they got it, that's cool, but it didn't help me. I was going to do it anyways. If people didn't get it, that's too bad, but I didn't care because I was going to do it anyways. So I really tried to cut out the negativity, but I also tried to limit the hype too mm-hmm. because I didn't want to be deterred or, or encouraged by either one of those. I just wanted to go on my own path and do it regardless of how people interpreted it or what their response to it. It doesn't matter to me. If somebody's like, Hey, you know, this is awesome. You're doing a great thing. I'm really appreciative of messages like that, but I don't need them, but I am appreciative of them. This is not going to, it's not fuel. I need the fuel is that I believe this is what I should be doing. Yeah. I love that. Um, that you're sort of differentiating again, I think in life and especially in, in modern culture, we're very, very wired toward the opinions of others. And essentially we're, we're, my, our, our therapist, my, my wife and I, our therapist calls us praise junkies. Like we're basically just waiting for that. He'll, my, our therapist will do a thing. I, obviously, if you're listening to this, you can't see me doing this, but he'll tap his <laughs> elbow and be like, you know, shoot me up. I'm ready for that next hit mm. of, of praise. Somebody telling me I'm doing a good job. And, and to really be oriented internally rather than externally, I don't want to distinguish that as overtly masculine because I think that's just a good human orientation. But that feels like a big part of it to kind of go with the stoicism and the manliness and this sort of blend of ideologies of like, whose approval are you trying to get? Right. Yours or someone else's, right? Well, that's the thing. If you can't validate yourself, you're going to be in a bad situation. Because look, if we're after that praise and the accolades and the notoriety, even the income, if we're after these external circumstances, those are fleeting. You know, even the things that you think are totally secure, your marriage, for example, or the love that you have from your children. I mean, what if your wife dies? Heaven forbid. Or what if you have a divorce? You know, or what if you're estranged from your kids or your parents? You know, like all of, all the things that we, your health is eroded. Like all the things that we think are there and we take for granted, those are external things that are great. I love being married. I love having my kids. I love having my health, but that stuff can go away. It can change at any moment. And if it does, who am I as a man? If I can't stand up on my own two feet, then I'm not really much of a man at all. It was all a facade. It was all a shell. And it was, it was, it was based on some, it was based on faulty foundations that just eroded out from underneath me. I call it emotional maturity. You know, I I don't need to get hyped up and hopped up by somebody else. And I'm not going to be deterred by somebody who happens to be negative. That isn't going to push me one way or the other. So what has been the most impactful thing that you've discovered through this journey as measured by how you directly applied it to your life in a way that significantly changed your life? I think I'll go with maybe not. 
I think it is one of the most impactful, but definitely the most surprising. Okay. And I think a lot of people would, a lot of men would agree with me on this is I felt like it was my job to provide physically, like make sure the income's in, you know, make sure we have a roof over our head, make sure the kids have clothes, make sure there's opportunities that are provided through financial abundance. And that's all true, by the way, like that is my job. But I failed for a long time. And even today, I'm still failing. I've, I have failed to see how I need to provide mentally, emotionally. That's a hard one. Emotionally, how I provide emotionally for my children and spiritually. So when I talk about provision, I think men immediately go to financial provision. Oh, I got to put, put food on the table, roof over the head, clothes on the back. Yes, you do need to do that. But don't let that be an exhaustive list. We need to be there emotionally, mentally, spiritually for our wife, for our children, for our friends, for our neighbors. And that's something that I fall short on every day and something even right now, like I'm very cognizant of and and working on myself. Do you, do you have any habits or routines that you've developed in your life to, you know, apply that realization and, and operationalize it on an ongoing basis? Yeah. I mean, uh, spiritually, I'm trying to be as involved as I can with my my personal relationship with God and then also teaching that to my children. So that's uh, consistent prayer, that's going to church, that's talking about things, that's learning biblical stories for myself and being able to share examples from the Bible with my children so they can lead their lives that they they hopefully want to want to lead, asking them about spirituality. Uh, mental, I would say what we do is we try to do difficult things. And we have a little mantra around here, two, two mantras that my kids always recite back to me. Micklers try new things and Micklers do hard things. And that's just a cultural mantra that we have. My daughter recited it to me the other day because she wanted her brothers to try, uh, what was it? I don't know, some food she wanted her brothers to try. And I'm like, do you think they will? And she's like, I don't know, Micklers try new things. And I love, I love hearing that. So we're trying to build that culture you know, around that. And then one thing that I've really been trying to do is just listen to my kids a little bit better. Just listen with, without judgment, without necessarily trying to fix it. I do have to give them direction because that's my calling as a father, but just trying to listen and observe and empathize with what they're going through. So my daughter and I, for example, to get more tactical, uh, we went on a date last week. It's like, Hey, you want to go on a date, you know, on Wednesday night? And she's like a date. I'm like, yeah, just you and me, like we'll go on a date. And so I took her, we went and did some uh, Christmas shopping for her brothers and mom. And then we went to dinner, just her and I together. And man, it's been a long time since I did that. I've really dropped the ball on that, but I try to get that one-on-one time with each of my kids. And that's certainly a way that we can do that. What, um, who's been your favorite guest you've had on the podcast? Oh man. Or, or most interesting or insert, you know, superlative. Yeah. Man, there's a lot. Like McConaughey was super interesting, you know, very fascinating individual. You know who I, who I, who really stands out to me? I, I hate to do this because there's so many wonderful ones, but I've had Tim Tebow on the podcast yeah. a couple of times now. Have you, have you had him on the podcast or interacted with him at all? No, I have not. Uh, he's on the, the, the list, but not yet. I'm telling you, the guy is an incredible, incredible human being. I had the opportunity um, earlier in the year. Yeah, it was earlier this year to fly to New York and he happened to be there on his tour. And so we kind of timed it right. And 
Um, he came and interviewed with us and I, and I got a hotel room and set it all up for us, a, a high production interview. And the guy walked in, he's, he's a, he's a, he's a specimen of a human being. Anyways, he's a right. big, strong athletic guy. He's a specimen of a human being, but I'll tell you what, he walked into that room and there was something noticeably different, like the presence of him or his, his persona. I don't even like persona. Cause that seems fabricated, but like his, his presence, this, like his, was it like his there. energy? Energy is a good way to say it. Yeah. Energy is a good way to say it. He's just one of the most decent, kind, charitable people that I've ever met. And I could just feel it. You could just see it. And he's so passionate about what he does. I'm really inspired by that guy. Hmm. All right. I'm going to, I'm going to bump him up the list and we're going to, we're going to apply some extra pressure now to get him on Do the it. show. Do it. I would. Yeah. I've, I've only ever heard uh, really wonderful things about him, like along the lines of what you're saying that, you know, what you see is what you get. There's no, you know, dupl- I mean, because he presents as, like you say, a very, very altruistic guy. And that essentially that's that's yeah. authentic. Is whatever. I mean, I would challenge what you see is what you get. I'd say what you get is actually better than what you see. Hmm. Like most people, when you meet them, not that you're under uh, underwhelmed or, or unimpressed, but usually it's just not as great as you've made it up in your mind. Like you go see a movie, right? For example, you, you hear all these reviews about this movie you want to go see and you go see it and you have these high expectations and you see it and you're like, oh man, that was a dud. Because mm-hmm. you built up the expectation in your mind. And that's kind of how it is. When I think when people meet me, probably like <laughs> they listen to the podcast and they see the people that we have interviews and then they meet me. They're like, oh yeah, you're just a regular guy. Yeah. Like I'm nothing special, but you know, there are, there are certain people that I've met who mm-hmm. are, are truly special. He's one of them. Hmm. So what's, um, what, what do you think is going on? Like in society? I mean, yeah, I get you. You, I, I got my books or my authors confused, and I referenced "Men in Marriage" by George Gilder when when you were talking about "Manhood of the Making" by David Gilmore. But I'll, I'll give you the backstory there. So, "Men in Marriage" is a book. I was raised Jewish, and so when I was thirteen, I you know I had my becoming a man ceremony bar mitzvah, right? And yeah. my uncle gave me this book, which is it's kind of funny now to think about giving it to a, to a thirteen year old, right? "Men in Marriage." And it was written by, so George Gilder was actually a, a pretty influential thought leader back in like the 70s and 80s. He was actually a speechwriter for Ronald Reagan, interestingly. Okay. But a uh, really sharp book. But in it, it sort of talked about, and it's funny because I, I remember back when I was a kid, I didn't have the same lens that I look at the world through now, but I had this er- pretty early seed planted of like, manliness or masculinity or just the reality, the existence or experience of being a man is under some sort of attack or is under threat or, or under, I don't know. It's, it's the, the winds are blowing a certain way. Right. And, and that was like a profound thing to realize as a 13 year old. Right. And so I've always had this sense of like, man, it's a hard, it's a hard age to be a man. Uh, a hard age, meaning like in civilization terms, right? I don't mean right. my, no, I my age. Yeah, no, so I'm curious, yeah, like, you know, like, like, what do you, how do you sort of explain or process the sort of attack on manliness that I'm, I'm, I don't want to assume, but it feels like you're part of taking a stand against that attack through what you do in, in your life. 
And where do you think it, what, like, what's it all about? Like, why are, I don't why know are we I'm, the bad guys? <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't know that I would frame it as I'm against that I, because I like to be working towards something. And maybe that's just semantics. Like I stand for, you know, authentic and genuine masculinity. You know, I'm not, it's not just against something. Cause that puts me on the sure. defense. We're not being defensive. I'm being offensive. Like we're on the offense. I like you know, that. Like we, we got the yeah. ball. Like, this is how we need to show up. This is how I need to show up personally. And I, and I, like I said, I fall short, but this is how I need to do it. This is my play. Uh, yeah, but I think you're right. I think there, I used to say a dismissal. There's a dismissal of masculinity and there certainly is a lot of people dismiss it. A lot of people try to undermine it. And I think a lot of that is ignorance. Um, some of it is probably uh, misguided anger. Maybe they had, maybe their father was abusive. Maybe they were uh, sexually abused or molested as a child. Um, maybe they were the victim of a violent crime or encounter with another man. And so they attribute violence or, or these traits with all of, all of manliness or all of masculinity. Um, that's misguided, you know, but also I I've seen the tide. I was going to say shift, but not really shift, just get stronger. And it seems to me like there's something greater at play here. And and I'll tell you what I think it is. Uh, number one, it's the powers that be would love nothing more than to see men, strong, independent, capable men, subjugated, weak, pathetic, because they're easier to control and manipulate. So if they can strip families away, if they can pull the men out of the household, if they can make men dependent on, well, drugs, alcohol, sedation things, um, welfare, benefit programs, if they can make them dependent on those things, then they can pull the strings and they can manipulate. And so we see it in academia, a public school system, even in college and universities. We see it through the government. We even see it in the medical community. How, how there was a, a study, and I cite this in the book, the American Psychological Association did a quote study and they came to the conclusion, and I'm paraphrasing, but I'm not far off here, that the traits that we would normally attribute to masculinity, so that was dominance, competitiveness, stoicism, and aggression, I believe are the four they listed, are inherently dangerous and destructive to our young boys. And say, I say, those, say those four traits again, if you would. Uh, if, if I remember correctly, it's competitiveness, dominance, stoicism, and aggression. And I make the case in the book how those four traits and four others are not inherently toxic, like people would say, or destructive right. or dangerous, but they can be used for positive outcomes. But I, I would go so far as to say there's a spiritual war being waged as well, one that we can't see and quantify in the physical, um, but this is being driven by the enemy, by Satan. And I, I know that's going to turn a lot of heads, and I know that's something I probably wouldn't have shared even three or four or five months ago, but that's the reality, is that there is a a, a cosmic force against us working in the minds and hearts of of our leaders and trying to make this a very destructive hopeless time and we need to turn the tides of that hey there sorry to interrupt the show but i just have a quick favor to ask so we recently broke into the top 100 podcasts in the entrepreneurship category. We've been hovering around 75 and we're really trying to push up into like the top 20 and grow the impact of the show. So if you enjoy what we do here and you're a supporter, the biggest thing you could do to help would be to leave us a positive review. Uh, whatever platform you're listening on, you should be able to leave a quick review. Let the world know what you like about the show. Thank you so much for your time and uh, let's get back to it. Do, do you think that femininity is under a similar attack 
for similar reasons from similar forces? Yeah, I think the guy, the idea is if we can pit men and women against each other, then, you know, it's that little, you've probably seen the comic where the king is on the balcony and he's overlooking the populace and he has what I think is a prince saying, you know, we can't fight against these people. And he says, we don't need to fight against these people. We just need to get the pitchforks to fight with the people with the, the torches. Right. And I think that's what's happening is let's pit men against women and women against men. So with men, they've, they've said, okay, well, your, your characteristics, dominance, competitiveness, stoicism, aggression, violence, like all these things that we would generally attribute to men, they'll say that these things are inherently destructive or dangerous. And then they'll convince the boys to act more like little girls. You see that in the public school system. There's some great works by Dr. Warren Farrell, who's been on the podcast, um, Dr. Leonard Sachs, who's also been on the podcast. And he talks about how the school system is structured and set up for girls and at the expense of our young boys. And then you tell, so you tell that to the men that they're wrong inherently, they're wrong. They're bad for society. And then you tell the women, hey, you don't need them. In fact, you need to be like them in order to be as capable or worthy as them. And so they tell them, leave the home, leave your children, leave your husband. In fact, don't even get married. You can do all of that stuff on your own without the help of a man. And there's been plenty of studies that have shown that there's a lot of regret from women who enter the workforce and skip their childbearing years and, and not raise families. That's something that can't be, you know, once that time has passed, it's passed. So yeah, there's, there's a strong push to have the men against the women and we're not against each other. We actually work in harmony with each other. Yeah. It's interesting, um, man. And, and, and I'll, I'll say, I mean, this is, this is one of the, and, and I'm loving it. This is one of the more, political, cultural, sociological conversations that I've had on the show. And it's, and it's interesting because it's bringing up for me, there's a, there's a delicacy and almost an, an apologism for stuff like this, where it's like, you don't want to, we live in a world where part of what you're talking about is actually this idea that you don't want to offend anyone, which is, which is almost like, yeah. don't take a bold enough stance that anybody could oppose it. But I mean, what could be less manly than tell than that guidance? And I'm not out to offend anybody. I'm I'm just speaking what I what I believe to be true, and then also what is unequivocally true. And I know the difference. You know, we we hear team terms like my truth. That is to soften the blow. Okay, there's no my truth. All right, there's the truth, and there's my opinion or perception. And I know the difference. I know some of what I'm sharing is my opinion. I'm okay with that. Like, and if that offends you, too bad. I'm not even going to say sorry because I'm not sorry that offends you. I'm, it's just too bad that that offends you, that, that somebody who believes something different than you is offensive to you, that you can't handle it. That's too bad. But I'm going to keep sharing and helping who I can help. Do you, do you get a lot of like, you know, vitriol and, and call it lashing out for what you do as sort of, a, like you said, a stand for men? No. I really don't. I mean, I, I occasionally I'll get the troll or the hater or the, you know, the random bot account that says I'm a misogynist or a sexist or this or that. Um, but no, the people who listen to what I'm doing, the men who listen to what I'm doing, appreciate it. You know, the 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 worst comment I'll get from men is like, who are you to tell another man what being manly is? Well, so you have, so you haven't that? had the call it the anti-masculine lobby or agenda, whatever that is, wherever it comes from, you, you haven't felt like they've, 
come at you in, in any sort of coordinated or like brute force way. No. And maybe I'm not, you know, in, 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 in their scopes at this point, you know, maybe that's the issue. But if you look at our demographics, whether it's on the podcast or Facebook or Instagram or wherever, 85% of our followers are men and 15% of our followers are, are women. And the 15% of women who follow us are overwhelmingly supportive. Yeah. Hey, we love this. You know, a lot of them are single mothers. Hey, I'm raising, I'm raising a couple of boys on my own. Dad's in prison. Dad's not in the picture. Dad, this, dad, that, whatever it could be. And I'm not trying to pass any judgment on that. I don't know the situation, but dad's out of the picture for whatever reason. And you got these women who are trying to raise boys and they're like, I don't know what to do. Right. You don't. So hopefully for those women, I'm giving them some insight. And what I would tell that woman is hopefully you're listening and gaining some insight, but hopefully you can get them around other men who can lead them because there's a, there's a, there's a deficiency. And I'm not saying that in a mean spirited way, but there's something that you're lacking. You're not a man and they need other men in their lives to help usher them into manhood. They cannot do it with your help exclusively. Yeah. You know, one of the things, uh, again, I referenced uh, our therapist, my wife and I, um, and one of the things he taught us is that there's something, and, and again, this is biological. This is beyond opinion, right? It, it, that that there's something that only a father figure can provide to a child. And it's what he calls unstructured play. It's, you know, it's roughhousing. It's, it's ad-libbing. It's physic, physical ad-libbing through play, right? Um, Definitely. Go ahead. No, I was, I was just agreeing. I can give you an example of that. I, we have mats. We just bought some cheap, inexpensive mats, 12 by 12 in size, 12 feet by 12 feet. And me and my kids, every couple of nights, we go out there and we, we wrestle around. And my daughter was wrestling with me and her younger brother, and she got her hair pulled or something. And she started crying and she went, she went, she got up and she went to run in the other room. I said, no, 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 no. Stop crying and get back over here and start wrestling again. She's like, that hurt. I'm like, look, I know it hurts. No getting your hair tugged on or you getting an elbow in the chin. Like, I know that hurts. So what? Deal with it. Like nobody. And, and then her, her little brother was on top of her and she's like, I can't get up. And she started to get upset. I'm like, she's like, help me. I'm like, I'm not going to help you. I'll tell you, I'll coach you, but you got to do it. Nobody's going to help you do it. You got to do it. And she did it. And she was so proud of herself. But society generally might look at that and say, oh my gosh, you're doing a horrible job as a father. Or mom might want to rush in and say, let her up. Like, let's, you know, kiss her boo-boos and all that. And there's a time and a place for that. But yeah, there's got to be some rough house. And Jordan Peterson talks quite a bit about this as well. There's got to be some rough house in a structured environment. So, you know, uh, another example, my, uh, my youngest son, the other day we were wrestling and he punched me right in the privates, just right, you know, right there. And I'm like, hey, we don't do that. You know, and there was a line and he learned where the line was. I said, in a street fight, do whatever you want, but not right here. You know, and so, yeah, you got to have that structured play for sure. Or excuse me, unstructured play. Yeah, yeah. It's like, so it's, it, you know, the way he explains is obviously you, def you define certain boundaries and certain constraints. Like, no, you know, you're not going to body slam your six-year-old and injure them. But, but within right. that, the whole point is, and there's something about, and, and again, I'm not a psychologist, but he, the way the way he educated us, there's literally something about the energetic interaction that's different between parental men and parental women where like 
again, there's a fluidity to it, it like making it up in the moment. Um, no, and, and a lot of it, he, the way he's, he's explained it is it, it actually comes back to the protective instincts. Like it's impossible for, for mothers in many cases to completely let all the guardrails down mm-hmm. because they're, they're having to override their maternal instinct. And it requires a man to come in and be like, you know what, we're going to let somebody get hurt. Right. We're not going to let somebody get killed. Like we're, but you know, we're going to move the boundaries out, but not get rid of them altogether. That that's a uniquely masculine parental thing. And uh, it's, it's funny. I, I think there's, there's people that would literally be offended that this mere suggestion of what I'm saying. And it's like, yeah. you know, I don't know, talk to my therapist, right? It's just psychology. <laughs> there's a, there's actually a fascinating body of work on what you're talking about, specifically in the relationship between fathers and daughters, which is something that doesn't get talked about a whole lot. But Dr. Warren Farrell talks about this quite a bit. And he says, you know, it's it's really important even for daughters to have these bonding type experiences with their fathers because they need to learn that they can garner a man's attention without it being overtly sexual. Mm-hmm. Oh, because, my gosh. I have a 13 year old daughter, so I'm right. totally hip to this. Yes. So so you, if you look at the research and the statistics, it'll show that that that, that daughters that don't have a father figure permanently in their life are, are more sexual at an earlier age. And that's because it's easy. You know, it's easier to be attractive to a man than it is to win him over with intellect or some other virtue. Right. But, but daughters who have fathers in their lives get the attention of men, their father, without it being overly sexual, without it being sexual at all in nature. So my daughter and I, for example, can go on a date and enjoy each other's conversation without any sort of weird sexual energy there. <laughs> she doesn't have to do that in order to realize that she's worthy and she's valuable for being herself, who she is. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's funny. Like, I think one of the ways that this societal siege or whatever we want to call it, which, you know, for the record, I, I totally agree with you and have experienced as a man um, that this this is a a war of a spiritual nature that's being played out in, in civilization, Western civilization, especially. Um, but it's like it's made it taboo to talk about stuff. It's made it's made common sense anathema. Like like you're not allowed to just state super obvious stuff. Yeah, I would say the man, the man in me, the man I'm trying to be is disheartened by that. That's frustrating. But the marketer in me says, good. Because as I talk about these subjects that are not really controversial, but people like to be in fake up, up uh, outrage and uproar right. about it, just draw more attention to what we're doing. So, you know, I see both sides of it being a good thing. Yeah. That's, Societally, that's, it's not good. But for me right now, it's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and there's a lot of these undercurrents that nobody wants to acknowledge what the real driver of the current is. But I mean, they're they're happening um, no we doubt. see him in we see him in elections. We see him in in discourse. Uh, man, uh, we're we're like out of time. I, I this it conversation. Fast. I saw the clock. Yeah, it's flown by. Uh, I just I, lo- I love what you're doing, and and honestly, just as a man, like I just appreciate that there's people that are having co- like conversations that are driven, like we talked about, by people's internal orientation. You know, I, I heard somebody define politics the other day as speaking based on how the listener is going to react 
rather than the truth of the speaker. Good point. And Good I, point. Just, I appreciate you having a non-political, you know, business and crusade and, and talk track around this hugely important issue. I just appreciate it, man. And uh, I'm, I'm actually a little surprised that nobody's, you don't feel like you have a target on your back, but I'm sure you won't be surprised if you ever start to feel that way, because there's a lot of people that just want you, probably want you to just shut the hell up and stop talking about this stuff. And that's okay, because when that happens, they're going to draw more attention to what we're right. doing. And the people who do want to hear about it are going to be served. You know, you talk about politics being, you know, speaking based on who's listening. I'm speaking based on what I believe is right. And those who believe similarly, they'll find me. And, and that, that's, okay. that's enough. Like, I don't need mm -hmm. to win people over. The people who believe like I believe, and we are in the millions and millions, they will find what we're doing and they will band with us. Man, by the way, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this for, every, for all the listeners' benefit. Like, if you're thinking to yourself, well, manliness is taken. Ryan took manliness and entrepreneurship is taken. Jeff took entrepreneurship. And, you know, all the things that I'm passionate about, they're all taken and there's no room for me in the market. I just want to, I just want to, you know, invite people to, to discard that sort of scarcity thinking. I mean, I personally know four different people who have businesses that are very successful, that are oriented around men, ma masculinity and or fatherhood. Definitely. And there's Definitely. probably, and there's room for 400,000 more. Like it, there's no, when you stumble onto things that you are called, like, I don't think God calls us to be passionate and driven around subjects for which the world has no appetite. And you don't even need the world. You need a thousand people. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. A hundred you know, committed listeners. You can build a wonderful it. business. Yeah. That's all you need. You know, I, I think about, uh, you talked about him earlier, Brett McKay with Art of Manliness. You know, mm -hmm. I had very, very similar thoughts uh, when, when I started. I was like, well, Brett, like, he's doing it. My model is really actually pretty different than what he's doing. And we would talk about different things. Uh, Larry Hagner is a good friend of mine. He's focused on fatherhood, which is things that we, we hit on and touch on. And we're friends. Like we share business strategies and ideas together. I had a guy call me the other day. He's a friend and he's building out a, a, a membership. And he's like, Hey Ryan, can I talk with you for an hour? Him and his business partner, we talked for, I think 30 minutes or so. And I shared like what I'm doing. I, I shared it with him. And most people are like, Oh, what, what are you doing? Here's my thought. I can share that with him because the people who are going to do it and get it, are going to do it on their own, whether you help them or not. And the people who aren't, you can give them everything and they still won't do it. So it doesn't matter. And there's so much to go around. So yeah, I don't, I don't buy into that scarcity thing. And also I'm different than everybody else. Somebody who might be listening, who wants to get in the same space as I am, they're different than me. We see things a little different. We communicate differently. We have different experiences or cultures or backgrounds, or religions. Cool. Get after it. I wish you all the best. I'll help you do it. Yeah. And that's where imposter syndrome kicks in is when you're trying to do what you perceive someone else does the way you perceive them doing it. You're out of, you're out of authenticity and, and yes. it's just be yourself. You know what, what right. Oscar Wilde said, uh, be yourself. Everyone else is taken, right? Like that's there's right. always room for that. Hey man, uh, yeah. thank you so much for being a guest on unlock your potential. Again, thanks for all you do. How can the world go get more of Ryan Mickler and order a man? 
Yeah, orderaman.com or order a man for podcasts, wherever you listen. I'm on Instagram is where I'm most active, at Ryan Mickler. And then you can check out the Masculinity Manifesto wherever you get your books. Hey, it's Jeff here. If you liked this episode of Unlock Your Potential, it would mean so much if you would like and share the episode on whatever platform you're listening or viewing on. And if you really like what we're doing here and you enjoy this podcast, please consider leaving a review. There is so much work that goes into these episodes and you leaving a positive review lets us know that that work is reaching people and especially it helps us reach other people. Your review could be the reason that someone else decides to tune in, check out this podcast and unlock their potential and ultimately level up the quality of their life. So thank you, thank you, thank you so much for your support and for listening, especially if you like or share or leave a review. Thank you for helping us spread the word and thank you for unlocking your potential to go make the world and your world a better place.